is it? You must choose. But choose wisely. For as the true grail will bring you life, the false grail will take it from you. See, that's what happens when you're left to pick the movie, and it's a bad one. You never, ever hear the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing in the world like discovering a film on your own. No hype or recommendations for others, including friends or Netflix suggestions. Uh Uh-uh. Like the old days, before Amazon, when you went into a bookstore, you read the flap or the back cover or something, and said, huh, this, this sounds interesting, I'm going to take a chance on this. And it ended up being a lifetime favorite. And there's a, a similar and increasingly uncommon movie version of that, too. Back, way back, in the day when I worked at a popular Philly video store, remember those? Uh, a co-worker and I, every Monday night, would have Bad Movie Night, where we'd search the shelves for what absolutely had to be the worst movie ever made. We'd put it on, it would play in the store's 10 to 15 TV monitors, and regular customers would often stop in after having had a few drinks at the bar across the street, to hang with us and to make comment on the evening's entertainment. And the awesome surprising thing was how often half the time either I or my bad movie night co-conspirator would 15 to 20 minutes into the film say, hey, this is actually pretty cool. Take this one off and put something else on. I'm taking this one home with me tonight. Anyway, tonight's show is kind of like that, only without the film starting out as the worst one ever made. 2018 has been a hell of a year for film. Um, some damn good movies, to be sure, and a number of them are up for Oscars this year. Uh, among them, A Star is Born, Bohemian Rhapsody, Black Panther, Roma. But it's also been a hell of a year in making us wonder how we'll be seeing our movies and more uh, in the coming days. Just within the last few months alone, uh, the ultraviolet cloud storage uh, system has gone belly up. No one saw that coming. Mm-hmm. Um uh, Netflix has even announced it's dropping some of its most popular shows from its lineup, including Marvel's uh, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, and The Punisher, all of them. Hmm. Uh, Samsung just recently announced it's ceasing the manufacturing of its 4K Blu-ray players. And even though certain films, classics such as Wings of Desire and the James Bond series, have been restored in 4K and were restored long ago, uh, they have not been released uh, on disc in 4K yet, and many studios are adopting a wait-and-see attitude trying to ascertain whether or not 4K players, TVs, and discs will go down the same no-thanks-we're-okay-with-what-we've-got path that 3D players and discs went down just a few short years ago. So, what's a die-hard film fan to do during times like these? Just see as many as you effing can and love them for what they are. Not for how many awards they win, and not for, you know, whether it's available in 4K or not, but just for loving the art of film for its own sake. Exactly. Well, which brings us to our 2019 Chief Event Awards, and that whole idea of unexpected holy grail-like discoveries, like uh, Indiana Jones there. <laughs> Established two years ago here at the Movie Sneak, it was in some respects a response to, as well as a celebration of, the concept of award season. What often happens around award seasons is that some films, older and newer ones, tend to fall between the cracks and kind of get forgotten, like the birthday of a child, unlucky to have their big day fall between the weeks of Thanksgiving and New Year's. And the whole idea of the Cheapy Bin Awards is to 
hook into and use award season to remind and encourage folks just for the sake of you know taking a flyer a little experimentation to maybe next time you're in your local best buy your target your right aid your goodwill store your supermarket walmart you're walking down the street and see somebody left a box out take two or three minutes and sift <laughs> through that pile of movies and you know maybe spend two or three bucks or pick up the one that has the least grimy cover <laughs> yeah, seeing as you don't have to spend 12 or $15 to see it in a theater or even stream it for 5 or 6 bucks online, it's kind of a neat spin-the-bottle-like film game you can play with family and friends, not unlike how we used to do on Bad Movie Night, and where you just might stumble onto a new favorite film, uh, your own personal holy grail. At any rate, tonight we're citing four films each, which we saw for the first time in 2018 because it was something we picked up in a cheapie bin and fell in love with. It doesn't necessarily have to be a film which was released in 2018, mind you, but it was one we first saw during the year because of the bin. I'm Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online. And I'm Jim Delaney of TheLunchMovie.com, and welcome to an all-new episode of The Movie Sneak. The $1.99 Holy Grail Sale. <laughs> the Cheap Even Awards 2019 for great movies no one gives a damn about, but should. In case you couldn't, in case you didn't notice, it was from Alita, uh, the new film that's getting a lot of buzz from James Cameron and Robert Rodriguez. Welcome back to the movie sneak. Uh, time for our Can You Dig It review, Jim. Short answer: I dug it. Longer answer: um, I had no idea what I was in for here, other oh, than wow, that. Really? Right? I mean, I didn't. I haven't read the mangas. I knew from the trailer. I just okay. Here's a big epicy thing. Let me let me see what this is about. And uh, uh, I gotta tell you, Cameron knows how to build a world. Yeah, yeah. Right, like that's just what I love about this thing. Like, I'm, it, it was it was so immersive from the very beginning, and it reminded me how seldom we get that anymore. Where sci-fi movies just sort of reference, not even reference another movie like story-wise, but just kind of like, you know, even the way The Empire Strikes Back referred to a cloaking device. Uh, which Star Trek had already established, mm-hmm. right? Like that that's just such just it's such a thing that sci-fi movies do now that to actually see a, a full realized new vision um was just kind of breathtaking and I sort uh-huh. of wanted to stay in it a lot longer than we got to. Mm-hmm. But and 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 also, well, I don't, I don't I, you and I already talked about this a little bit before, but but I also you know I'm a sucker for redemption stories. Mm-hmm. But um and it's been a while since we've had since we're since we're all sort of, I mean, just politically and in life and every day now, we're all sort sort of judged by our worst moment. Um, our drama hasn't really given us characters that really need to be redeemed, yeah. um, right? And here we had a couple that did, and uh, and and I just I just love that they were able to go that far down for people who would who would be protagonists, um, and and just give us like some real deep dimensions instead of you know 
clear black hat, white hat. Right, exactly. And and whoever was great at the beginning is still so at the end. Um, yeah, it's just so refreshing. And it's refreshing not in a bold new way, but in a way of just doing what always used to be so good, but that we've kind of haven't gotten enough yeah. of in the in basically since Avatar. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, okay. and I, I actually think I like this more than Avatar. You know, I might I might say that too. And what you were saying about the characters who um, need to be redeemed, mm-hmm. you know, I think we we talked about this before. I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast show before, but as much as I love the film Braveheart, I think it's an awesome film. I think it's beautifully realized. Everything about it technically is phenomenal. The only problem I have with the film is that the William Wallace character, as portrayed in the film, has no faults. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if he does have a fault, maybe it's just being a bad judge of character. As far as people <laughs> who later actually betray him, you know, I, I guess in a certain respect. And I kind of felt the same way about the two main characters in James Cameron's Titanic. Mm-hmm. Um, they have no faults. And uh, in a love story, like, say, The Way We Were, you have two people who are just so in their own worlds and getting to know each other kind of pulls them both a little more toward the center, you know, and they're kind of dragged kicking and screaming toward that center. Like you said, we don't see a lot of that anymore in films. We see a lot of, we start out good, we ride good through the whole film. We have a few obstacles, but we remain good at the end, and there's very little surprise. Um, the two things I loved about Alita, and I really, really like this film. I might like it more than Avatar as well. Um, I wrote a piece on it, which uh, anyone listening can access. It. It's on the Gold Cottage website, and there's a link to it on the uh, Movie Sneak page here too. And uh, I kind of go into how... One, I thought it was a perfect combination of a Cameron and a Rodriguez film. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the same way that when you look at AI, you say, yeah, I could definitely see, you know, the Kubrick influence and the Spielberg influence. Uh, when I look at a movie like uh, Clockers, I can definitely see the Scorsese influence and the Spike Lee influence. And when I watch this film, like you said, that whole building a world thing, I definitely, that's very straight up Cameron. The whole, a lot of heart in the film, that's straight up Cameron. And as far as very colorful characters, especially the supporting characters, like the hunter, the hunter warriors, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like when she first goes into that bar, it just reminded me of the titty twister from from Dust Till Dawn. And things kind of end up the same way, <laughs> you know, with people putting hair on the wall, so to speak. And just that colorful array of characters, um, particularly Jeff Fahey as McTeague, yeah. the, the, the bounty hunter with the robotic dogs. I thought yeah. that was so cool. And... Um, but also, just uh, Rodriguez does. Rodriguez gets a lot of credit for action, uh, staging action sequences, and he's great at that. I don't think he gets enough credit for the perceptive ear and eye he has towards kids, towards young people. Hmm. Okay. And, you know, when you look at a movie like Spy Kids, sure. I think it's a perfect example. When you look at the segment that he did in Four Four uh, Four, four rooms. rooms, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the Misbehaviors, which I, mm-hmm. for me is my favorite segment of that whole movie, just with the two kids on New Year's Eve. And even something like, uh, you know, the derided, the adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Uh, he still has, he really captures kids the, the way I think a lot of people can't uh, that try. And I think he really captures that whole adolescent young girl in the cusp between adulthood and teenhood. I think that the fact that she's cyborg, part human and part machine is a perfect analogy for her being part girl, part adult. She's kind of in that middle world and struggling between the two. And I think he handles it very, very well. Uh, we don't see that a lot, especially in genre films these days. In movies like Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants or Eighth Grade, you're allowed to delve into that. In genre films, action genre films, that would be considered a weakness of a character or a waste of time. Let's get right to the mm. kick-butt mm-hmm. stuff. But here, Cameron and Rodriguez take the time to do it. And as I said in the piece, I think she emerges as... An intriguing, unique character. She's not an action movie hero who happens to be a uh, teenage girl. In a way, she's an action movie hero because she's a young teenage girl. And I think that makes all the difference. It's very refreshing. So, yeah, I totally dug the film. So a thumbs up for me to steal little Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel-isms there. All right. (laughs) Well, thumbs up for me, too. And one last thing I just want to throw in, since you're referring to the teenage girl thing, there's, you know, sci-fi can do that. Genre movies can do that thing that straightforward drama can't and um lately again not enough it doesn't do it enough right exactly and, and, they can but, but they don't yeah and there's there's a moment here um all i'm gonna say is i saw it on valentine's day and it involves a heart 
Uh, and yes, when you uh-huh. see it, your jaw will drop and you'll yeah. go, holy crap, that's what every teen movie has been trying to do but yep. can't. But sci-fi can. And I it's totally just agree. perfect. And it, it, it's, a, it's a bold thing to do story-wise. It's a bold thing to do character-wise. Performance-wise, it could have gone so laughable, but it works. It it's works. Just, yeah, yeah. There's, it just, it's, it's really solid. And uh, yeah. I, you know, I kind of want to see it again, actually, now that yeah. we're talking about it. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> cool. Can you dig it? <laughs> So, diving into our cheapy bin choices. Uh, okay, Oscar nominees this year, uh, people involved with those nominees, films that they were involved with that we saw for the first time in their entirety during 2018 uh, because of the cheapy bin. So, my first pick, I'm going to go with someone who is nominated for, well, he was a director of the film, but the film was nominated for Best Picture this year, and he was also a producer. So Adam McKay uh, was nominated for Best Picture as a producer of this year's Vice. I'm going to go with the film he produced uh, back in 2016, along with Tim Beaven and Eric Fellner, the guys from Working Title. And might get a jaw drop out of this one. I'm going to go with the Brothers Grimsby. <laughs> oh, wow. Nobby! What? Get over here. What is it? I need you to suck this wound in my shoulder. No, no, no. I, I, I don't put my lips on another man's shoulder. That's very gay. Do it now. But, uh, people have been chucked out of Grimsby for ordering a vegetarian breakfast. That pellet was filled with Lenomia caterpillar toxin. I'll be dead in 90 seconds if you don't suck it out. Oh, okay, okay. Suck hard. That's it. Don't swallow the poison and I'll spit it out. <sighs> well done. Praise the Lord. I thought I'd lost you, brother. I love you so much. Nobby. What? I've been here somewhere else. Where? I'm, I'm not falling for that one. No way. No, you What are you doing? Whoa, 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 whoa. Why are you taking those off? Okay. <laughs> Called Grimsby outside the U.S. But uh, opened in early 2016, uh, pretty much tanked at the box office. But somehow, even when I saw the first trailers, I knew it was something I wanted to see. Never did until last summer. Well, the premise, uh, for those who may not be familiar with it, is that Sasha Baron Cohen is a loudmouth, white trash, English soccer hooligan. Okay, I'm sure that's a little stretch of the imagination, right? Uh, (laughs) Who has 11 kids (laughs) with his girlfriend, Ribble Wilson, in a small flat in the cultural town of Grimsby. And Mark Strong, who's always cool, either as a villain like he was in Sherlock Holmes or as a good guy like he was in the Kingsman movies. He's uh, the brother he hasn't seen almost since they were kids. And in the intervening years, Strong has become a top MI6 black ops agent named Sebastian Graves. And when the two are reunited at a football game, uh, where Cohen, while hugging his brother, accidentally throws off a rifle shot that his brother was trying to get off in order to stop an assassination. And the rifle shot nicks a Jewish-Palestinian boy with AIDS. (laughs) And the blood (laughs) flies into Daniel Radcliffe's mouth, who was playing Daniel Radcliffe. And gives him the disease. Uh, <laughs> the <laughs> brothers are accused of attempting the assassination that Strong was trying to prevent. Uh, and MI6 thinks that Strong has gone rogue. And the two brothers take it on the lamb in order to clear their names. That's the simple explanation. <laughs> the movie gets more complicated than that. But uh, there's an awesome supporting cast, which also includes uh, Isla Fisher, Gabrielle Sidibe, you know, Precious, Penelope Cruz, and Ian McShane. And Ian McShane is enough of a reason to see any movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's directed by Louis Leterrier, who directed the first two Transporter films, uh, The Clash of the Titans remake, and Now You See Me. Uh, he also directed the first Incredible Hulk, the film with uh, Edward Norton. And uh, critics didn't care for the movie, and it tanked at the box office. But those who did see it, audiences, gave it like an average score of a B plus on cinema score. I love it because, A, it's just a perfect action film. There's a lot of films that, you know, try to be action and comedy, and they usually get one or the other right. But this one, the action sequences are straight out of, like, the transporter. They're just mind-bogglingly awesome. But more importantly, it kind of captures that brothers dynamic that you and I have talked about before. And if we ever do that show on brothers uh, that we've been discussing about doing for a while, I'm going to bring this one up again. Because it's right up there, for me, with movies like uh, uh, Legends of the Fall and A River Runs Through It. And even lighter stuff like the Thor movies or Judge Dredd, where you have characters or, or the Pope of Greatest Village. You know, it's not light, but 
those movies that perfectly capture brothers. Um, you watch it, you go, yeah, that's pretty accurate. It may be a silly comedy action film, but they nailed the relationship between brothers, the love-hate relationship, the sometimes competitive relationship. But the, we'll fight like cats and dogs all we want, but don't let anybody else do a damn thing against my brother or I will mess you up. <laughs> and it, it captures that perfectly. So in the midst of all this tasteless humor and wild action, it's got this really great heart that totally captures the relationship between brothers. So uh, I'm going with that. Adam McKay, producer of The Brothers Grimsby, uh, nice. who was nominated for Vice this year. Cool. All right. Um, well, I'm going to come out with kind of a big gun straight from the get-go. Um this is a choice for uh, for for actor in a leading role. Um, w- Willem Dafoe is up this year for playing Vincent Van Gogh in in At Eternity's Gate, which, if you haven't seen, pretty damn solid, it's a solid movie. And he's, you know, as you'd expect from him, he's always great, right? Um, but here's a here's a twist. Uh, you know, uh, the movie that I'm choosing is it, it made me realize that we're used to seeing. Uh, Defoe either as absolute saints, Sergeant Elias in Platoon, mm-hmm. Jesus in The Last Temptation of Christ, you, you know my favorite Jesus movie right there, mm-hmm. or as absolute villains like yeah. To Live and Die in L.A., uh, um, Streets of Fire, one of our favorites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and, uh, and, and the as, Green Goblin in Spider-Man. <laughs> and, and, you know, probably the most fun he ever had playing a villain, Shadow of the Vampire. Absolutely. Right? Um, but there's a movie that I had wanted to see for a long time, and I finally got to see this year where he's a little bit of both. And it's The Clearing from 2004. Yes, I love that film. Picked it up in a cheapy bin about a year and a half ago myself. Did you? Nice. Oh. When did you lose your job? I guess it's obvious, huh? Eight years ago in November. What did you do? I was a manager of sorts. And you thought if you were hardworking and loyal and did everything they told you to do, that you'd be safe, right? I worked there 17 years. Out of their hands, they said. Well, it probably was. That's what they said. Changing economy. Got to keep things profitable. I've heard it all. Nothing personal. Yeah, right. It's a terrible thing. A lot of good people lost their jobs. I say 30% of our workforce at one point was from Hadley. You could have come work for us. I'd appreciate it if you didn't condescend me, Wayne. I know how the world works. That's why I'm out here with you. I I wanted to see this thing so bad. I mean, it's you know, you know I grew up loving Redford, and uh, and so here's a movie. The, the the general premise of this thing is Redford's just a uh, a retiring businessman. He's he's done his he's done his bit, and he's happy, and he's about to go off. You know, with his wife, who's played by Harold Mirren, can't go wrong with her. Um, and he gets abducted by a disgruntled former employee, uh, played by Willem Dafoe. Character's name is Arnold. You know, and it's a little, little, little on the nose. You got a character named Arnold, which sounds nebbishy and kind of like he's going to be the disgruntled one. And Redford's heroish guy, whose name is Wayne, which sounds strapping, like he should be one of the Incredibles, right? Um, but it's you know, it's a, it's a short zero fat on it lean movie of just of Defoe taking Redford at gunpoint through the woods threatening to kill him saying that you know that, that this is more of a hostage thing and he's doing it for money and it kind of works the thing I love about this movie um, it's a film that goes places you really don't expect it to go I'm glad you said that because I think that's a perfect amount to say without spoiling it. I was trying to figure out how to word it to say that, so thank you. Uh, and and I hope this doesn't spoil either, but basically the, the movie that I kind of compare it to, maybe it's almost too obvious a choice, but did you ever see Falling Down with Michael Douglas? So this is, I mean, they're, they're complete, they're, they're perfect companion features, but they're companion features in the sense of like Death Hunt with Charles Bronson and First Blood. Where there are similarities, but neither one spoils anything else for you. And I was basically so ready for this to turn into falling down, and at every turn, it doesn't. Um, and at every, like, in, you know, in, in falling down, at every moment, I was terrified of Michael Douglas because he was like just a coiled powder keg ready to go off. And the thing with poor Arnold, you know, 
every five minutes, he's the villain and I'm scared of him and I hope Redford gets away. But then the next moment, I see his point of view, you know, and it's such a razor's edge for, for Defoe to walk, to be able to be a sympathetic villain or a broken hero or what the hell is this guy? But it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a three character story. It could practically be a play, except he's gonna have how you gonna have him just walking through the woods in a play. But um, yeah, it's it's lean, it's tight. Defoe is perfect at doing the two extremes that he usually does in other movies. Um, it's it's one of those kind of movies where conversation uh, can be can be you know white knuckle intensity. Hey, can you turn your music down, please? Because I'm having a really hard time. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, sure, man. Yeah, I'll just turn it right down. Thank Sorry. you. Tell you something, buddy. I just man, man, because I have spent a significant amount of time all right with one of these creatures up my ass. It's not a lot of fun. And then I find out all along that they're killing you. This is the last time I'm asking you, where is my symbiote? I have no idea. Where is he? Oh god! Where's Venom? That is the ugliest looking thing I have ever seen. That's what up his ass too. Okay, this next one um, might be another little bit of a surprise. Maybe not. Okay, this year, uh, I'm going with Best Cinematography. And uh, Matthew Libetic, uh, or Libetic, I always mispronounce his name. Forgive me if he's listening. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he is nominated this year for Star is Born. And he's probably most respected and most famous for his collaborations over the years with Darren Aronofsky on Pi, which is just, I think, this fantastic black-and-white cinematography, which I love. Uh, Requiem for a Dream, The Fountain, Noah, Mother, and his numerous collaborations with Jon Favreau on Iron Man, Iron Man 2, Cowboys and Aliens, and Spike Lee. Uh, he worked with him on She Hate Me, Miracle on St. Anna, uh, Shyrock, and others. But... Um, my cheapy bin choice of a film shot by Matthew Libetech. Uh, uh, this holy grail goes to Venom. <laughs> oh, wow. Nice. Yeah, which he was the director of photography on. And the reason, uh, the primary word is balance. I mean, Venom should not work. Uh, <laughs> there's the character or the life form, uh, the symbiote from the comic books, which was kind of co-created by Todd McFarlane, and that should tell you enough. Uh, <laughs> You know, um, uh, the original incarnation, filmic incarnation of Spider-Man 3 was okay, but nothing which would make you think they nailed the character or the life form on its own. Now, the film directed by Ruben Fleischer of Zombieland and Gangster Squad. Now, that's a heck of a <laughs> extreme, you know, and Venom kind of falls in the middle. Uh, it's got some of the lunacy, if you will, of Zombieland and necessary lunacy, but some of the seriousness and earthiness of Gangster Squad. Um, Logan made it permissible to be hard-edged and politically incorrect in comic book adaptations, and the Venom character surely has always been that. Uh, I don't think this movie would have flown as an anti-hero, so to speak, back in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man days, or even in the early Marvel Iron Man and Avengers days, but now... Because at least a little bit, as people are becoming aware of things like Road to Perdition and a History of Violence as coming from graphic novels slash comic books, and people are slightly expanding their horizon to consider more edgy stuff and not just quote-unquote kid stuff, I think Venom works better now in this era than it would have worked even 10 years ago. 
Um, like I said, that balancing act, in the same way that the director is kind of like in between Zombieland and Gangster Squad, Libetech cinematography is so important in striking the balance. I mean, too much in one way, and it would be too cartoony. And the movie does flirt with a little too much CGI at times, but too much the other way um, by making it too gritty, and it could be accused of taking itself too seriously, which a lot of critics do. I mean, I love the Star Trek film Nemesis. Oh, and by the way, Tom Hardy is also in Nemesis, too. Uh, and he's the main character in Venom. I love that story. I am not so nuts about the visuals. They kind of a little too... The story is awesome. The whole dark side of another person, the dark side of Picard. Tom Hardy is a dark clone that somehow survived um, a military experiment that survived. And I love the story. But the look is too stylized. It's too Nosferatu-looking. And I think it takes the audience out of the gritty thematics and places it into a classic Trek world of hyper stylized of a hyper stylized future. I don't want to say with phony rocks and bricks, <laughs> no, <laughs> but it's just too stylized. And Venom avoids that. So I think between the direction and the screenplay, and especially the cinematography, Venom walks that balancing act, and it it works. And I I, I think the way it's filmed. Uh, has a huge is a huge part of its success, even though people may not be consciously aware of it. So, big shout out to Oscar nominee Matthew Libetek. Nice. All right. Cool. Kind of makes you want to see that one again too. I like. Okay. I, I liked it. I need another look at it. Okay. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I, I didn't know it was that successful. I knew it did well. Oh God! Geez. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Huge. All right. <clears throat> um. Well, for for my next choice. Uh, I'm going with uh, actress in the leading role mm-hmm. since we just did actor, um, and to me, a person who basically I've been all around surprised by her this year, and you're about to see why. Uh, Melissa McCarthy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, who's nominated for Can You Ever Forgive Me? Cool. And I saw the trailer for Can You Ever Forgive Me, and I thought, look at her. She's kind of doing a Jim Carrey, like you know, she's, okay. she's established this much as a comedic. Uh, actor and as a comedian, like a stand-up, and and now she's gunning for awards or gunning for serious stuff. (laughs) Who the hell does she think she she is? Yeah, right? And then between when I saw the trailer and then when I actually saw the movie, I was coming out of the train station and there's a 7-Eleven between my train station and home, and in a two-for-five bin, I picked up St. Vincent. How come you don't have anyone to watch this kid after school? just moved in. Where's the father? We met in college, and it turns out that he had been seeing No someone. need to tell it then. You gonna pay for my fence? Yeah, I, I yes. And I, my I tree? I was going to. I'm not sure how I can pay for a branch. Everything has a price. You're an adult. You should know that. All right, let me know. I can watch the kid after school. A few hours. <laughs> Same price. I can do $11 an hour. You pay the snacks. You're kidding, my last can of sardines. It's good. It's really good. She's <clears throat> phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And it's what opened up my mind to what she was, to why she has a nomination now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's basically the gateway drug to her being, you know, this more serious actress. Mm-hmm. Um, it's written and directed by Theodore Melfi, Melfi who right after this, uh, right after St. Vincent, he adapted and directed Hidden Figures. Oh, cool. Um, okay. And if you look at the VHS box, if you, oh, VHS, excuse me. VHS, <laughs> Whoa, <boy>. TV, okay. <laughs> Show the um, age there. If you, if, you, if you look at the DVD case, if you look at the, you know, the, the log line on IMDb, whatever, um, it would make you think that this is a Bill Murray comedy wherein he plays a slightly nicer version of Clint Eastwood's character from Gran Torino. Oh, right. Um, but to me, the real revelation here is Melissa McCarthy, excuse me, Melissa McCarthy. Um, she plays a single mom and a medical technician who moves in next door to Murray in Brooklyn. And uh, he has this gruff grandfatherly, grandfatherly relationship that develops between uh, McCarthy's son and, and Murray. Um, and that's where most of the comedy comes from. But but the thing that really worked for me is that she has to carry the just about the entire dramatic burden. Right? She gets the uh, sort of the straight... The straight man or the straight person, straight woman to to Murphy, uh, Murphy, uh, Murray, Bill Murray, mm-hmm. you know, just that that plastic mug that he has that, you know, mm-hmm. he can just settle into any expression and better than a punchline. And she has to balance that. She has to be the dramatic one. And also the kids being awkward and precocious. So he gets to be cute. Um, 
And, you know, I mean, this is a lady who, if we, you know, we've seen her outtakes in, in credits from, you know, the Paul Feig movies that she's done and the Judd Apatow movies. And, like, she's a blunt, her, her comedic force is like blunt force trauma, right? Mm-hmm. She's a weapon. And and there are all these scenes that would have been great scenes, except she cracks somebody up and they have to stop. Because mm-hmm. um, she's just that damn funny. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I... I, I the thing with this this movie, seeing it when I did, it reminded me of how I felt when, you know, remember when Michael Keaton was announced for Batman and everybody thought, oh, he can't do it. He's too right. silly. Right. But those of us who had clean said had seen clean and sober said, right, wait a second, give the man a chance. And and I saw St. Vincent I was like, oh, OK, this is this is not the lady I knew before. This is something entirely different. Let me see if she can do this other thing. And sure enough, this other thing is what gets her a nomination. Um, St. Vincent, it's, it's a character movie. Not an awful lot happens. It's just a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a struggling working mom who moves in next to this ne'er-do-well and she makes the mistake of trusting him to look out for her kid a couple of times. And, and, you know, it has the potential to go to home alone style hilarity has a potential to go to like little children tragedy. Doesn't do either of those. It just gives you a sort of very real, more standard independent film, um, the kind of things that happen that to any parent would be just very real and yep, I recognize that. And to a non-parent like me makes me go, that's why I'll never be cut out to be a parent, <laughs> <laughs> right? I might be able to grow up to be Bill Murray in this movie, but I don't have uh, a Maggie. That's a character that her right. character's name is Maggie. Uh, there's no Maggie in me. And watching her in this movie is is just kind of, it shows you all the single mothers you know. It shows you all the working mothers you know. Um, in a way that movies, you know, sometimes try to, but don't quite nail. And I think that's partially credit to a pretty good screenplay and a pretty good movie overall. But the real credit here is, is just her. It was, it was a revelation. Um, and, and really the, the thing that, the thing that made me realize how great she was as I was watching this, um, you and I are both big fans of the right stuff, both the book and the book and the movie. And forever, I thought, there needs to be a movie about Poncho Barnes, <laughs> right? And I was watching this movie thinking, she should play Poncho Barnes. I can and if see I, that. If I won the lottery, I would be making two phone calls to beg you to write that script with me and to beg her to play the damn character. Because right here, right now, that, that if, I, if I had the money to make any movie I want, I think that'd be a hell of a movie. I think she's just the right person to play it. And six months ago, that thought never would have entered my Interesting. mind. Nice. Well, it's kind of funny. Uh, my next uh, choice has a connection to Can You Ever Forgive Me also. No. Oh. Uh, I'm going to go with the uh, category of Best Adapted Screenplay, um, which uh, with Can You Forgive Me, the Best Adapted Screenplay nominees are uh, Nicole Holofcener, uh with playwright Jeff Witte. So um, I have been a huge fan of Nicole Holofcener since I first saw Walking and Talking uh, back in the mid-'90s. Uh, since then, she's written and directed films such as Friends with Money and Please Give, most of them featuring Katherine Keener, whom I also love and will see anything she's involved with. And she's also been involved in a lot of TV episodes, uh, writing and directing episodes of Sex in the City and Gilmore Girls and Six Feet Under and Parks and Recreation and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and a bunch of others. So in the last 20 years or so, she's been a huge directorial force to be reckoned with, even if many people don't know her name. Uh, now, she's got this wonderful grasp, kind of like what you were talking about, this balancing act between comedy and drama. And I would add self-introspection, which is dead on accurate. Anyway, all that said, uh, the film I'm going with from 2013 was a film she wrote and directed called Enough Said. You know what? Hold this for me. There's not right. one man at this party that I'm attracted to. Hello. Hey, Jason. How you doing? This is Albert. Hi. Hey, how's it going? How are you? Hey. Hi. So this is a nice party. Got all the nice white balls hanging down and stuff. Uh, Eva was just telling me that there are no men at this party that she's attracted to. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why you would make that announcement. Really? But, um, is that unusual? No, actually. To be honest, it's not unusual. No offense. No, no, that's okay. It's okay. There's no one here I'm attracted to either. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, it's kind of an ugly crowd, really. I think it might be my favorite film by her. Uh, it stars Julia Louis, 
Ju- uh, I can't even talk. Julia Louise Dreyfus and James Gandolfini in one of his last roles before he passed away. It was his second to the last theatrical role. Uh, both this film and The Drop were released about a year after he passed away. And um, in this one, <clears throat> uh, on the surface, the premise might seem like something from a standard typical rom-com or an episode of The New Adventures of Old Christine or something. Um, But it's more than that. Dreyfus is a somewhat relationship-cynical divorcee and single mom to a teenage girl, uh, and she's a masseuse, a freelance masseuse, and some of the scenes with her and her clients are just downright hilarious. Uh, And she meets single-parent Gandolfini, who is also raising a teen girl who is about to go off to college. Uh, They meet at a friend's not-so-great get-together slash party, and he asks her for her phone number, and she reluctantly gives it to him, reluctantly because she's not really physically attracted to him, but she doesn't, she's uncomfortable with saying no. (laughs) But they go out, and she finds that she enjoys his company, and they go out again, and they start getting closer until she discovers that the ex-wife he's made reference to now and then turns out to be one of her favorite massage clients, Catherine Keener, whom she's become close friends with over the past few weeks. Now, if things had just stayed at that rom-com confusion level, the film would be no great shakes. But the plot is pretty much just an excuse to delve into, and uh, Hoff Center said some of the film is autobiographical, how very often older single people can become their own worst enemies in relationships. Uh, Saying they want to connect, but building subconscious walls, self-sabotage as a teacher that I used to have uh, back in high school used to say, that thing where a part of you becomes afraid of being dumped, so to speak, so you do things subconsciously to sabotage the relationship that will kind of make the other person get fed up and they'll leave instead of you having to do it. You know, then you're proven right and you didn't have to take the responsibility of ending things because if you did, then you would have no more excuse for your life not being where you say you want it to be. So there's all of that going on below the surface about how people, especially as we get older, we become more protective and we build these walls and we develop this thick skin you know, uh, to protect ourselves from that which we say we really want. <laughs> so all of that is going on in this film. And it's very funny, too. Uh, very perceptive. And I think it actually might be my favorite James Gandolfini performance. Because, it's a, I mean, uh, I always thought that he, his gay hitman character in The Mexican was something that totally came out of left field. I didn't expect that. This character, even more so. He's just a really nice guy who's humorous, and it's hard to believe this is Tony Soprano that we're watching. (laughs) It's a great film. Great performances all around. Uh, Written and directed incredibly well by Nicole uh, Hall of Center, who was nominated this year for uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Nice. Yeah, I saw that one. I, I, I I mean, you know, I love Gandolfini also, and and I made a big point to see it when it first came out. And uh, yeah, it's it's a sweetheart. My next topic is one that, this is the one you've probably already guessed at, that I've alluded to. Costume design is is the topic. Uh, and it's the one that I said that as any proper nerd, I feel remiss for having not, uh, not seen this until this year. Um, uh, the nominee for this year is, is uh, Ruth Carter. Ah, the cool. film is Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Okay, do you have a guess? Do you want to throw a guess? Or, or should I just Actually, say no. I... No? Um... I said I was going to spend a little time brainstorming, but I kind of okay. didn't have the time. Sorry. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Good. Maybe I'll actually surprise you, but I'm probably just going to make you hang your head in shame that you even know me. Uh, Serenity from 2005. Oh, okay. Really? I'm, yes. I'm shocked. I'm shocked you haven't seen that one. Right? Uh, wow. I'm just, I, I just lost a nerd stripe. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, Serenity, for anybody who hasn't seen it, was the feature film follow-up to uh, Joss Whedon's TV. Short-lived, but beautiful uh, sci-fi series uh, Firefly ain't all buds and charts with Lava Dross you know what the first rule of flying is well I suppose you do since you already know I'm about to say I do but I like to hear you say it love you can learn all the math in the verse you take a boat in the air that you don't love shake you off just as sure as a turn in the world. Love keeps her in the air when she ought to fall down. Tells you she's hurting before she canes. 
makes her own. I'd seen a couple episodes of Firefly here and there, enough to know that I was intrigued by it, but back in 2002 and three when it first aired, I, I didn't keep up with it because they kept part of the problem with the show tanked was they kept shifting the night on yes, it. Yes, very right? much so. It was such a neat show, but you had to be really dedicated to catch all the episodes, and I think they even started airing them out of order toward the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, last year... Uh, uh, there's a there's a store around New England and around Boston specifically Newbury Comics, which is one of the last bastions of where you can find used video. And during a firehouse sale on used uh, Blu-rays and DVDs, I picked up both the complete series, like all I think eleven episodes right. of Firefly, uh-huh. and then also Serenity. Cool. Um, if you're not familiar with the show, it's uh, uh, it's basically about about it's not about you know the big galactic heroes like the federation of star trek and it's not about like the the plucky underdog rebels like the heroes in star wars it's neither it's about the working class schmoes who are trapped between <laughs> forces like that in every other sci-fi thing it's they're basically they're not really pirates they're more like mercenaries um uh they're led by uh, captain uh, malcolm reynolds played by nathan fillion um, and they just they they transport hazardous crap from one planet to another, transport dangerous people from one planet to another. That's how they get by. Mm-hmm. And there are there, there had been you know a group of rebels and a group of the big galactic force. Um, and as this story opens, the war is already finished between those two factions, and these are just the regular people trying to make a living. Uh, some of them veterans from one side or the other of of this whole equation. Mm-hmm. Now the the real trick, uh, especially for for Ruth Carter and this thing, is you got an established show that had its own really unique look. Um, it was kind of steampunk. It was kind of old west. Um, they had they had you know not lasery laser guns that fired bolts of light, but they had you know super powered guns that still look kind of like you know a Colt forty five. Um, they wore dusters like like the Long Riders. Mm-hmm. They they wore clothes that looked vaguely reminiscent of the original Battlestar Galactica. So, how do you take something like that and scale it up for a feature film without blowing it like the Star Trek the Motion Picture did? Mm-hmm. Right? Remember the space pajamas that right. nobody wanted that Halloween costume, right? Because they looked <laughs> ridiculous. Um, Harkening back to Alita, the one you and I talked before we recorded, and the one glitch I have with Alita is it it's it's too much of a setup for a sequel, which is a small quibble. Mm-hmm. We knew that's going to happen. Like right? everything's a franchise now, mm-hmm. and that's fine. But Serenity is a self-contained, very much so, ending to the series, ending as a movie. It's a solid. Here is our world. Here is our movie, and and the neat thing that Ruth Carter does is to to uh, jump into this this pretty well established, unique, just carefully defined look of a show, and and scale it up. Yeah, it just it, it makes me lament that there weren't more 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 episodes, that there weren't more movies. But apparently, we have comics coming now. Yeah, so, yeah, you know. Uh, Serenity and Firefly will continue to live on, and as somebody who came to it way too late, I'm glad I came at a perfect time that they, you know there's more stories will be coming. Guten Morgen, 92nd Division, Buffalo Soldiers, welcome to the war. We've been waiting for you. Do you know our German Wehrmacht has been here digging bunkers for six months on the Gothic Line, waiting? Your white commanders won't tell you that, of course. Why? Because they don't care if you die. But the German people have nothing against the Negro. That's why I'm warning you now with all my heart and soul. Save yourself, Negro brothers. Why die for a nation that doesn't want you? A nation that treats you like a slave.
Our final category, I have to admit, uh, on this particular one, is kind of a twofer. Uh, technically, I'm going with someone who was nominated for Best Score this year, but uh, the film was also nominated for Best Director and Best Picture and a few others. But uh, I'm going to go with composer Terrence Blanchard, who was nominated for Best Original Score for Black Klansman this year. And obviously the film was nominated for Best Picture, and Spike Lee was nominated for Best Director. And the film that I'm going with is um, uh, Miracle at St. Anna. Oh, nice. Yeah, and it's kind of funny because I actually picked that. I, I didn't get a chance to see it at the movies. I really wanted to. Uh, I just didn't get a chance to. And I picked it up um, in a cheapy bin. Oh, Lord. Uh, God. About two or three years ago. And as anyone who gets movies from the cheapy bin or anyone who orders movies online, uh, you often will get two or three movies at a time, sometimes four or five movies at a time if it's from a cheapy bin. You spend 10 bucks, you get four or five movies. And sometimes you put them on the shelf and you don't get to them for a year or two or more. And I didn't get to Miracle at St. Anna, finally, until uh, relatively recently. And I sat down and watched it and I was blown away. I expected it to be good, even though some critics dumped on it. Uh, it is a little long. It's two hours and 40 minutes. I don't know if it needs to be two hours and 40 minutes, it doesn't drag, but it probably could have achieved the same thing it does in two hours and 15 minutes, two hours and 20 minutes. But uh, the neat thing is, um, how, how to describe this? It it could have just been Saving Private Ryan with a higher melanin content. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that, okay, not that a non-African-American you know, director can't do African-American-themed films or a non-Asian director can't do non-Asian-themed films. I mean, I, I, that's not true. Uh, Norman Jewison, you know, has made some uh, In the Heat of the Night, The Hurricane. Um, he actually was the original director behind Malcolm X. He had done a lot of the pre-production stuff, hiring Arnold Pearl to do the screenplay and what have you, and he was going to work with Denzel Washington again, whom he had worked with at that time on A Soldier Story. And uh, so you don't need an African-American director, but he turned Malcolm X over to Spike Lee because Spike Lee was so passionate about it that he said, please, I have to do this film. And he has said in interviews, with that kind of passion, you gotta, you have to let him do it because he's going to bring things to it from a personal level. And that's what he does with Miracle at St. Anna. Uh, there are things in it, some of which were touched upon in the movie. Um, crap, my mind's going blank. The one with Bruce Willis and Colin Farrell and Terrence Howard. Um, oh, crap. Oh. Oh. The World War II film, yeah. Yeah. But uh, that takes place in the... Hearts War. Thank you, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it touches upon in the Hearts War some of the same things about how um, the German POWs were treated better in the camps, in the prison camps in the United States than African-American soldiers were treated in the frickin' army, you know, during mm -hmm. World War mm -hmm. II in, in, in some cases. And Miracle at St. brings a lot of, of that up. And in the same way that... Um, and Saving Private Ryan, an ongoing theme, an ongoing argument that the the platoon has with one another is, is one person worth all of this? And then you get to the end of the film and you realize, oh, I am that one person. Am I worth all of that? You know. And I like how in Miracle at St. Anna, they're constantly arguing over the fact that, you know, why are we doing this when we, you know, some of them say, I'm doing this for the future, an America I believe in and that I want to create for my son and my grandson and my granddaughters and what have you, uh, and others who are like, do you really think that's going to happen? Any word from the radio? Yep, snafu. Situation normal, all fucked up. Little Negroes like Bishop set the race back 400 years. He stick his limp, light-skinned penis in the 88 if he could. And calls me a handkerchief head. A what? My Uncle Tom. Oh. Hey, I don't... I know. Puerto Ricans ain't got nothing to do with it. Mm-mm. I'm sorry. I mean, look, Bishop is Bishop. But for what it's worth, I think you're doing a hell of a job out here. Something wrong here. Wrong with what? And I love Italy. I ain't a nigga here. I'm just me. Yeah. Shame, man. Yeah, these Italians is catching holy hell, but they ain't studying about how to keep a Negro down. I never felt so free in my life. It makes me feel ashamed to feel more free in a foreign country than I do my own. All my tomorrows was based on America getting better. What if it doesn't? Yeah, so there's that argument there, which really has a very powerful subtext. Now, I didn't realize before I sat down to watch the film that in the wraparound sequence, you know, uh, it starts in present day 
and then we go flashback to World War II, that you got John Turturro and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it. it I, I didn't expect uh, so many different performers, to, but everyone wants to work with Spike Lee. He's one of those guys where even if it's just a small part, people want to work with him. And uh, Michael Ealy is fantastic. It's got a great cast. It's a fantastic film, very well done. The first film Lee ever filmed in Europe, and the score by Terrence Blanchard. I love Terrence Blanchard. I actually had a chance to meet him a few times when I worked at a jazz club in Philly, and he played there a couple times, coming back every year for a few years running. So I got to chat with him uh, on a couple of occasions and talk about the food we had. He he, he loved he loved the duck that we had there and uh, and he signed my Malcolm X uh, uh, soundtrack CD nice. but uh, a really great guy it's really cool and I love I just love the score to that film it um, I don't want to say it's 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 an orchestral score as was the score to Malcolm X but the the way he differentiates between the American soldiers the German soldiers the Italian people in in, in the town and this sort of like this requiem kind of piece that you hear um, in piano at the beginning of the film, it really, really, really adds some extra layers to the film. Uh, the film is very well done, but it kind of gives it a semi-epic feel. Uh, great score. And like I said, so Blanchard is also nominated for Black Klansman uh, this year. And uh, so that's my uh, best original score. And I guess technically best director uh, choice too, uh, that both of those guys worked on. I, I'm glad you chose that one. I really like that movie a lot. Um, I got cool. to see it when it first came out. And, mm-hmm. and it's actually before I even started lunch movie blogging, back when I it was a recent, like a new person on Facebook, uh-huh. just using Facebook as a place to write, you know, on your own wall. That was like the first, probably mm-hmm. the first like real organized, I'm going to write about this because I don't, I need to express it to somebody and I don't know where else to put it. Nice. And I just, I, I love that it was also, you know, a, a, a movie about, I mean, it's a faith movie. That doesn't scream faith movie. Yeah, right? yeah it's kind of funny you yeah. say that because yeah. I didn't look at it as a faith movie. Although there are characters in the movie, characters who definitely have faith. Yeah, yeah. in spite of everything that's going on. Right, and <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what I loved about it. it I mean, it doesn't. It, there's no. It, it, it's a it's a movie that I guess it's wrong to call it probably a faith movie. It's a movie about people of faith that doesn't preach. Maybe that's the right, movie. right. Yeah, kind okay. of like how um, Martin Scorsese once referred to two thousand one yeah. as the most spiritual movie ever made, yeah. but not a religious film. Right. Yeah, and I, think, I, kinda, that, and I was totally unprepared for that, and that just added this whole great dimension to it. For yeah, me. yeah, big time. Big time. Hey, well, what's the problem? He's causing trouble. I got a picture here. I want you to help me find this woman. I've been asking everybody. Nobody knows anything. Listen, listen. Just call it. Call it. Listen. We don't want the cops in here. Listen. She got a family? I suppose you haven't seen her either. Her name is Christmas. I suppose you've never seen her. Why, why'd you go outside? Shut up! Oh, How's that? Faith is kind of another good segue into where I'm going to head for my last one. Okay. All right. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going with uh, Best Original Screenplay. Hmm. Um, and if you look at those nominees, that pretty much leaves us with Paul Schrader. Because <laughs> of first. Oh, okay. Form, <laughs> right, right. right. Uh huh. Um, but the Paul Schrader movie that I never saw until this year uh, was Hardcore. Wow. Okay. Wow. Have you seen it? A long time ago. Okay. Yeah. Um, when 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 Hardcore first came out in 1979, Ooh. I wanted to see it because oh, I knew George. C- I'm sorry. I go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh-huh. um, I I knew George C. Scott because I loved Day of the Dolphin when I was like mm-hmm. four, um, mm-hmm. and I loved seeing Patton on TV. Like every time Patton came on TV, my brother had to watch it. Mm-hmm. But uh, and you know, my, you and I have talked about this. My brother, I mean, my dad used to take my brother and me to some pretty shocking stuff. Something. Yeah, yeah. But Same hardcore here. was where he drew that weight until your older line. Right. For um, us, it was. Um, right? um, yeah. For us, it was. Um, Straw dogs. They're like, no, we're oh, not. Yeah, exactly. We're not taking you sure. to see that one. Right, right. <laughs> we're not taking you to see that one. Uh, and, and my you know, my dad lumped uh, Schrader and Scorsese's Taxi Driver into that same camp. You just do okay. wait till you're older. Yeah. And when I finally saw Taxi Driver when I was in high school, I was like, you know what? Yeah, I agree. I was mm-hmm. not ready for that when I thought I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and hardcore is just you know way more elusive than Taxi Driver. How often do you see that anywhere? 
Brian Taxi Driver pops up on BBC America these days, for Christ's sake. Yeah. Um, and I, I finally got to see Howard Core courtesy of a $3 copy from a flea market in Norway, Maine. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, just visiting Maria's family and uh, go to this this junk store and in the back they have a whole bunch of paperbacks and DVDs and there it was. Nice. So, uh, George C. Scott, the guy that I love so much in Day of the Dolphin, uh, plays a fellow named Jake Van Dorn, which is a good name for an actor like, you know, that's a name that, that a voice like George C. Scott can bark. Right, right. Jake Van Dorn! <laughs> uh, fellow from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where Schrader himself was born. Um, and Jake Van Dorn is a pretty devout Calvinist, and if you've ever read any interview or an article about Schrader, it will not get past the first paragraph without using the, and this is, it's got to put it in air quotes, strict Calvinist upbringing, right? They always say that about Schrader. Yeah. Uh, within the first paragraph, always. <laughs> so this movie, you know, it's sort of the, if, if we have a, a sort of central what if, I imagine Schrader sat there saying, what if an upstanding, respected local family man from my Michigan community discovered that his daughter had been abducted into the world of California pornography? Mm-hmm. To what lengths would he go to get her back? How might it, that quest make him revise his, how he thinks about himself, his right. family, his faith? Right? So we get this you know, respectable Van Doren trying to go to the LAPD like you would do if your child was missing, uh, gets nowhere there, tries a... Uh, slightly scuzzy private investigator played by Peter Boyle, and you know, have you ever seen two more everyman actors than Peter Do- mm-hmm. Peter Boyle yeah. and uh, and uh, George C. Scott in the same movie? Um, so you get these two teaming up to go where where you know most people would fear to tread. Um, Peter Boyle leads George C. Scott to a, a sometime prostitute, sometime porn actress played by Susan Hubley. Um, also from Escape from New York for mm-hmm. <laughs> genre fans, um, and with with her, she she takes him through the ringer. We start in L.A., we go down to San Diego, we end up in San Francisco, and you you watch this character, you watch Van Dorn, um, basically doing what would be anathema to him in his own personal life. He has to he has to when he realizes Crack and Skulls isn't going to get him all the information. He he basically has to pose as a porn producer to try to get into this life that he wants nothing to do with. Um, and uh, uh, season Hugh, the character Season Hubie plays the prostitute named Nikki, starts to see him not fully as a surrogate dad, but she at least maybe sees him as a way of, like, if I help this man, maybe I can go with him and get the hell out of this life. You know what your problem is? You think negatively. You're a very negative person. I mean, you got to believe in something. What do they believe in? Uh, the uh, what church? Dutch Reformation. Sorry, Calvinist denomination. Well, do they believe in reincarnation? I believe in reincarnation. They believe in the tulip. What the crap? <laughs> it's an acronym. It comes from the canons of Dort. Every letter stands for a different belief, like... Uh, you sure you want to hear this? Yeah, yeah. Please, go on. I'm, I'm a Venusian myself. Well, T stands for total depravity. All men, through original sin, are totally evil and incapable of good. All my works are as filthy rags in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> That's what the Venusians call negative moral attitudes. Um... And it's just it's just it's a great companion piece to Taxi Driver, which is just a, two or three years earlier, because uh, one gives you the perspective of an insider who's stared way too long in this abyss, and the other gives you the perspective of an outsider who's totally immune to the temptation but has to wade into it up to his nostrils, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just I'm really glad I saw it now, um, because you know the latter half of Shader's career has sort of charted the American pendulum spring to a more religious. Right, mm-hmm. right. I mean, you could start with the Mosquito Coast and the Acceptation mm-hmm. of Christ. Then you get more existentially adrift with like the affliction and bringing out the dead. Mm-hmm. And finally, now we've got you know we're staring right down the, the first first reform stares right, right. down the, the barrel of dogma and says, where do we really take dogma from? Um, and and you know Schrader's so many of his early movies uh, and the ones he directed and the ones just that he just wrote, you know, they explored the sexual expression repression and the extremity of it in in like the more libertine 70s taxi driver the yakuza touched on it american gigolo his remake of cat people 
Um, and so for all those movies, hardcore was kind of the last stage that I hadn't been able to see. And now that I've seen it and seen like this complete sort of through line that you can follow of his career of, you know, this strict Calvinist upbringing, looking at the, um, well, the Boogie Nights era of the seventies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Which, you know, but, but Boogie Nights is, you know, a more modern take on it and, and looking back at, but to see hardcore and to see a movie about that life made when that life was, was present. Um, it was just, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad I finally got to saw it, see it. And I'm glad I saw it this year. Can you dig it? Well, so um, that's our <laughs> conception of an award show, yep. um, which we kind of do to, I mean, I, I think I mentioned before, I don't remember whether I mentioned it on one of our shows or not, but uh, film comment. And actually, the issue should be coming out this month or early next month. Every year, film comment, published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center, they have uh, an issue where they have an annual piece called Moments Out of Time. And I probably enjoy this more than any award show that can air at any time. It's Moments Out of Time is where they just go in and mention magical moments from films all during the year. It's huge. It's like five, six, seven pages long sometimes. And they, it, it could be an entire scene. It could be one shot. It could be one frame. Uh, they're from Critical Darlings. They're from cheesy exploitation films. They're from genre films, Hollywood staples, independent films. Uh, it could just be one frame of a film. It could be the way somebody turns their head and looks. But for whatever reason, there's something about this piece of film that exemplifies the magic of film. Wow. And I love that issue. And every time I read it, uh, there are films that I've seen where I go, yeah, exactly, exactly. I thought the same exact thing. And there are other films where I'm like, oh, my God, I have to see this film just for that one scene or just for that one (laughs) shot. And then you just kind of start with that one shot and then reverse engineer into the rest of the film and figure out and see how it all relates to it. Kind of like what you said with hardcore. Um, Seeing it now, it almost throws all the other Schrader films into a certain perspective. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, that issue always does that for me. So, uh, like I said, it's kind of about that time of year for that issue to come out. So I got to keep an eye out for it. I got to run by uh, um, Barnes & Noble to see if it's out. Thanks for that heads up. uh, I didn't know they did that. I want to keep an eye out for that. And I'm I'm, I'm already guessing that next year's issue for that will have that scene from Alita that I was mentioning earlier with the the heart situation. It's got to be, right? I would not be surprised. I, I would be shocked if it isn't. Neat. You know, but uh, yeah, so in, in a way, this is kind of our version of that. Uh, our version of um, just loving film for what it is. And just saying that, hey, yeah, these are great films that these people who are being nominated for Oscars this year, they've done other stuff that is Oscar worthy. It may not be as popular, it may not be as famous, it may not be as critically acclaimed, mm-hmm. but uh, we think that people who genuinely love film will genuinely love these other things for which these particular honorees. Uh, may not have gotten the uh, the props for it that they uh, very richly deserved. So, anyway, thanks for everybody for joining us. I, I guess that'll wrap it up for this yeah. one. Thanks. Okay. So, and uh, yeah, big time. I think yeah. so too. <laughs> so, uh, until the next time, I'm Craig Jamison from Gold Cottage Online, and I'm Jim Delaney from TheLunchMovie.com. And thanks for joining us at the Movie Sneak. See you next time up there in those cheap seats. A reminder that all film, music, and other clips are the rights and property of the copyright holders and are used here for entertainment, educational, and criticism purposes only. 